call the foreign relations uh, meeting to order and thank our witnesses for being here. Today's hearing is, a fifth, is the fifth in a series of hearings we have held looking at the role of the United States in the Middle East and North Africa. We have looked at Iraq and Syria, the Arabian Peninsula, the refugee crisis, and have heard from the administration. Today gives us an opportunity to look at the region in which the Arab Spring began, North Africa. Almost five years after widespread protests began in Tunisia and spread across the region, North Africa remains a fragile and volatile region. Five years later, most of the region's economies are in serious trouble. Violent insurgencies and terrorist groups have spread, and governance ranges from democracy to autocracy. Tunisia, which may hold up as a model for the region, is struggling on both security and economic fronts. Tunisia serves, deserves the admiration of all of us for what they have done, and they have received it through a Nobel Peace Prize. But I would like to hear the views of our witnesses on what steps the United States should be taking in order to ensure Tunisia's con continued success. Libya, a country in the middle of a civil war, has been working through a UN process for unity government for over a year at this point. I know the Libyan chief of mission is in the audience today, and we welcome her. And I would like to recognize the frustration she must feel as terrorism and humanitarian crises spread across Libya. In October, the UN representative announced an agreement which the two parties have not yet signed. We have been hearing for a year that U.S. policy in Libya is to support the UN process. As the process drags on without resolution, I hope our witnesses can weigh in on what steps we should be taking. Egypt, a country that has seen some of the worst political turmoil in the region, continues to play a vital role as home to the largest population in the Arab world and, the, and their origin of many ideas and movements throughout the Middle East. But U.S. policy there seems adrift, as it is in much of North Africa. I hope our witnesses today, I'm sure you will, can help us focus on a U.S. strategic interest, what they are in North Africa, and what steps we should be taking to reach them. I want to thank you again for appearing before the committee, turn to our distinguished ranking member for his comments, and then look forward to your testimony. Well, Mr. Chairman, thank you. This, this has been a series of hearings that we've held in regards to the Middle East. Obviously, it's an area of great uh, importance to the United States. It has extreme challenges, uh, and uh, we are very much want the, this committee to be engaged uh, in our policies in the Middle East. Now, Northern Africa is very important to that. It hasn't been in the headlines as much as some of the other areas of the Middle East, but it holds out uh, tremendous consequences for U.S. interests. So I thank you very much for uh, convening this, this hearing, and I thank our two witnesses for being here. As the chairman pointed out, Arab Spring started in Northern Africa, and Tunisia, a street vendor, set himself fire, the Jasmine Revolution, uh, and now the um, getting attention in Tunisia because of the Nobel Peace Prize to the National Dialogue Quartet. Uh, but its uh, stability is being threatened. Its democratic reforms through because of terrorism affecting its economic conditions, which obviously affects the stability of the country. In Libya, we have a civil war. It's not uncommon for that region to have civil wars. There is no military solution here. The diplomatic, uh, political solution is going to be critical. And we welcome uh, our witnesses' views as to how we are progressing 
on um, uh, achieving that uh, political uh, accord for, for the future of Libya. In Egypt, a critically important country to the United States, President Sisi's had his challenges. There's no question about that. But one lesson I think we've learned here is as we look for stability in that critically important country, uh, it can only come if there is political reform that provides the human rights for the people of Egypt. And we welcome your views in that regard. In Morocco and Algeria, two countries whose political stability uh, did not really change much during Arab Spring, were able to, to weather that type of challenge. But they do have other challenges, no question. Political reform is still very much uh, uh, critically important to both of those countries, and the Western Sahara uh, region still becomes one that has yet to have the type of stability for the people of that region and its political future that is, is necessary. So, Mr. Chairman, as we look at Northern Africa, we know that we have challenges. We have challenges of dealing with terrorism. How do we, uh, how do we engage the countries of that region in an effective counterterrorism strategy? We have a problem of young people, uh, and the young people need economic opportunity, and they want uh, political reform. And we, how do we channel that energy that exists in Northern Africa? in a positive way, uh, considering the, the U.S. objectives. Uh, so for all those reasons, I think this hearing is particularly timely, and I look forward to hearing from our witnesses. Thank you, Senator Cardin. We'll now turn to our witnesses. Our first witness is Haim Malka, the Deputy Director and Senior Fellow for the Middle East Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. We thank you for sharing your wisdom with us today. And the second witness is Dr. William Lawrence, a visiting professor of political science International Affairs at the Elliott School of International Affairs of the George Washington University. Quite a title, thank you. Uh, we appreciate you being here and uh, hope you'll summarize your comments in about five minutes. If you have any written materials, uh, it'll be uh, without objection part of the record. And with that, uh, Mr. Malka, if you would begin, we'd appreciate it. Thank you. Good morning, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, and members of the committee. It's a real honor to sit here before you to speak about North Africa, a region which is undergoing historic change and poses risks and opportunities for the United States. You have my written testimony already where I detail the importance of North Africa to core U.S. interests, analyze the state of play in the region, and set forth ideas for U.S. policy moving forward. Rather than rehash that written statement, what I thought would be more helpful was to share my approach with you to North Africa and focus on Tunisia and Libya, two countries that highlight the risk and opportunity for the United States. I like to think about North Africa as a long-term investment. When I first came to Washington, D.C. in 2001, the area between the Navy Yard and South Capitol Street was pretty much a wasteland. It was full of empty lots. It was known for drugs, crime. Nobody would really want to go there. But despite seeming marginal to the city, and despite its many problems, the area held real promise. In 2004, Major League Baseball and the city of DC had a vision and were committed to building a ballpark there. Fast forward a decade, and the area around National Stadium has created jobs, generated new business, housing, improved the city's security, and has become an important symbol in the city's progress. Vision, investment, risk, commitment, all changed the fate of that corner of the city and the nation's capital. We should be thinking about North Africa as a similar investment for the United States. The Maghreb states of North Africa have been marginal to U.S. interests for decades. 
But since 2011, the region has become central to many of the global issues we already care about and which uh, you've mentioned uh, at the beginning of this hearing. Most importantly, security and counterterrorism, political change in the Arab world, and stability in Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. I'd like to briefly outline three important factors shaping the region which directly affect U.S. interests. First, Libya has become the Islamic State's most important base outside of Syria and Iraq and is emerging as a new hub for regional jihad. The fight between two competing governments in Libya creates a security vacuum that the Islamic State exploits. Islamic State is now recruiting and it markets Libya as a more accessible destination for jihad than Syria. As, Islamic State, as the Islamic State base, an Islamic State base only 100 miles from the shores of Europe would be devastating to US interests and the surrounding countries. Second, Tunisia is the best opportunity for an Arab state to transition from dictatorship to more representative and accountable government. The United States has been promoting political change globally and in the Arab world for decades. Helping Tunisia succeed would not only achieve long-standing U.S. objectives, but could be the most effective countermeasure to the, hottest, to the jihadist narrative. Despite many positive steps forward, Tunisia remains vulnerable to political polarization, economic stagnation, terrorism, and deep socioeconomic challenges which fuel radicalism, especially among young people. Third, it's important to understand that what happens in North Africa has an impact far beyond its borders. The region is deeply networked into Europe, the Middle East, and Sub-Saharan Africa. Protests in Tunisia, as we already mentioned, spread throughout the Arab world. Jihadists from every neighboring region transit through Libya for arms, weapons, and sanctuary. And smuggling networks traffic weapons, goods, and people from across Africa through the region and onto Europe. This has created a new humanitarian disaster and refugee crisis, which is straining European infrastructure, policing, and fanning the flames of nationalist politics in Europe. Now, there is no blueprint for how to meet these challenges, but there are several policy considerations and conclusions that can guide a more effective US policy. First, we must continue to invest in American diplomacy. US engagement makes a difference, especially during pivotal moments. By extension, when the US remains on the sidelines or unfocused, other governments fill the void and often pursue policies that undermine US interests and perpetuate conflict. As a positive example, the US ambassador to Tunisia at the time played an important role at critical moments in Tunisia's transition and helped make the difference between a political compromise and more divisions and violence. In Libya, despite the many challenges that we face, the United States should con continue pushing for a unity government. And it should con consider with the EU more targeted sanctions against those Libyans in both governments that oppose a unity accord. Second, we should be prioritizing investment and assistance to at-risk countries that show potential, most importantly Tunisia. The importance of Tunisia's success requires a more consistent and robust aid package. Fully funding the administration's aid request for FY 2016, rather than cutting it, would send an important message of US commitment to Tunisia. Speeding up the delivery of eight Black Hawk helicopters, which is being delayed, would also help Tunisia fight terrorism more effectively. At the same time, it's important 
to remember not to over-securitize our aid and partnership with Tunisia. Security is a crucial component, but it must be part of a comprehensive strategy. Third and finally, we have to have realist realistic expectations about what is achievable in the short term. Many of the current challenges facing the region are chronic problems that don't have easy solutions. In the meantime, the security environment will likely deteriorate before it improves. Having realistic expectations about what is achievable in the short to medium term will help sustain a more effective policy. Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, other members of the committee, this is a pivotal moment in the region. To reap the benefits of more effective engagement in North Africa, we must take a long-term investing approach. We need an investment strategy that sees the opportunity, clearly identifies our interests and objectives, acknowledges manageable risks, and has the staying power to ride out the inevitable fluctuations. If we stay that course, we position ourselves to ultimately strengthen American interests and to reap dividends long into the future. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for your testimony. We look forward to our questions. Uh, Dr. Lawrence, if you would begin, we'd appreciate it. Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, distinguished members of the committee. Five years ago next month, the Arab Spring erupted across North Africa and into our collective consciousness like a shot heard around the world, upsetting long-held notions about what was possible and likely in the region. One young Tunisian self-immolation lit a torch of change across the Middle East and North African region, and to its credit, evidenced by the recent Nobel Peace Prize, Tunisia is considered the one last flame of hope in a region on fire. But beneath the billowing smoke and raging fire, there are profound tectonic shifts that cause the Arab Spring that are continuing, producing all, uh, all at once new challenges and new opportunities for the United States. As others have testified before you in recent weeks, Powerful, destructive forces are at work, but this is by no means the whole story. As I testified before this committee and the subcommittee in November 2013, we are still living in, North in the North Africa region in the wake of a world historical moment where accelerated change continues in profound uh, but cacophonous ways. So much is happening, we often miss most of what is going on because so much is happening in so many places at once. And we find great difficulty in adapting our traditional strategies to moving targets, oscillating between risk-averse reflexes to disengage and let them fight it out, or with the considerable resources of our powerful military at our disposal, a wishful desire to deliver a sledgehammer death blow, a coup de grace to our mortal enemies and anyone allied with them and be done with it. Neither approach will work. We have to think big and bold, and at times venture outside of our comfort zone, but like a cancer surgeon, we need a holistic, comprehensive, and aggressive approach with microscopic precision to achieve the, the right macro level effects. Many things remain unchanged from my 2013 testimony, uh, so I won't reproduce all that, but summarizing them, number one, Syria remains the biggest problem in North Africa, and, and all of these, I'm happy to answer questions about it during the Q&A. Number two, the main causes that drove the profound changes we're seeing in North Africa are economic, more than political or security oriented, although there are political and security oriented problems that we have to address. Uh, number three, North African young people made these revolutions, and we have to address our strategies towards these young people. Number four, we must not get demography wrong. 
So for example, Tunisia's problem is not a youth bulge, they've already had a demographic transition. Tunisia's problem is unemployed university graduates who are unemployed at three, four times the rate of, the, of, of less uh, educated Tunisians, and so we have to think about that. Uh, number five, uh, the revolutionary forces that produce all this change are fed up with the very geopolitical, our, with our geopolitical foes and our geopolitical friends in the region, and we have to think about that. Number six, North Africa is different. Of the 18 countries that rose up in the winter of 2011, the North African nations played a much larger role than nations of the East. They incubated this change over a longer period. They provided much of the political culture of protest and continue to have the greatest chance of success uh, in the region. Number seven, major events go unreported or underreported in the Western press. Two years ago, it was Bloody Friday in, Benghazi, in Tripoli. Now we're having a, a major leadership crisis in Nida Tunis. We have the aftermath of the sacking of the Algeria intelligence chief, a whole list of things that are causing major changes that aren't being reported and we have to dial in and understand those. Um, we still suffer from the various ways information gets filtered to us. One of these I have long called the Egypt effect, where if Egypt's doing well, the region's doing well, and if Egypt's not doing well, the, the region isn't doing well, and we have to get around that filter. Um, we tend to focus on the national and not the subnational and the transnational. We have to uh, address um, the fact that m these, more and more of these states are, in Yahya Zubir's terms, becoming managers of violence rather than dealing with the underlying problems causing the violence. And like Haim, the last point is I, I continue to be concerned about our very light footprint, uh, not just with regards to Libya, but in Tunisia and Algeria as well. To be sure, some things have changed since my last testimony. The primary one is Libya got worse, and the second civil war broke out in May 2014, launched by General Haftar in response to a string of political assassinations in Benghazi, and, and, and this has made, meant that Libya has uh, transitioned from a country of 100 different communal conflicts to 100 different communal conflicts and now one big conflict with coalitions fighting and all that will have to be addressed in the peace plan. In Tunisia, we need to continue to support uh, political reconciliation, but we also have to support real economic reconciliation, transitional justice and reform in every sector starting with the security, se with security sector reform. To get there, we need to increase our assistance to Tunisia to 800 million annually as part of a $5 billion package of grants and loans that Tunisia will need to succeed with its democratic transition. Uh, to reach this goal, we've been advocating for a, a donor conference for Tunisia uh, uh, to make up this shortfall. And of course, the Senate must uh, uh, restore the $50 million of mostly security assistance cut following the two terrorist attacks in Tunisia and the President's visit uh, um, to front page disappointed headlines uh, in the region. And it's worth noting that in the Zogby poll of 2014 in the region, there's a sharp decline in confidence uh, that the U.S. is committed to democracy because of our lack of assistance to Tunisia and, and, and democratic forces. Supporting inclusive politics, however, uh, um, uh, is, is the solution, I, and I believe, to all the problems. We need an inclusive solution to Libya that includes civil society and the two main factions. We need uh, to uh, continue to push for inclusive uh, uh, solutions for Tunisia, especially in the economic realm. Uh, we need to promote inclusive politics in Algeria, inclusive politics in Morocco, where there's a, a new crackdown on civil society, and inclusive politics when it comes to Western Sahara, where I have long argued power sharing 
uh, uh, provides the best chance for, uh, um, for success. Uh, uh, right now, we're having opposite arguments being made. Zero-sum solutions for Libya, zero-sum solutions for, for Egypt. And uh, 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 this very um, uh, negative uh, 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 trend of, of all or nothing uh, political, uh, desire for political outcomes is alienating the very youth I began uh, by talking about. That's why 90% of Egyptians stayed away from the polls in recent parliamentary elections. That's why 80% of young Tunisians stayed away in the 2014 elections. Uh, the U.S. must support uh, inclusive political outcomes. And for Egypt, uh, let me say that start with 177 elected parliamentarians in jail, the most jailed parliament in the world. Uh, start with the hundreds on death row on trumped-up charges. Perhaps if Egypt can begin with these two groups, we can create the conditions for a political dialogue in Egypt um, that would get uh, the current regime towards the type of political inclusivity uh, that we all seek. Thank you. Thank you both. Uh, I'm going to reserve my time for interjections along the way, if that's okay, and start with Senator Cardin. And, and, uh, Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let me thank again both of our witnesses. And you both agree that uh, an important part of our strategy in North Africa uh, rests with our appropriation process. Um, both of you saying that we should adhere to the President's requests in some actions already in Congress. They've already uh, have reduced those. Uh, if money was the sole issue here, obviously, um, looking at Egypt, that has not been a, a necessarily um, uh, an effective way to bring about the types of reforms that we would have hoped to have seen. So I, I, I want to just concentrate on Libya for one moment, if I might, because it seems like when you talk about Tunisia, uh, the, the uh, ability of terrorists to be trained in Libya and then enter Tunisia, affecting their economy through terrorism and, 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 and tourism being dramatically reduced, uh, unless we can get uh, some resolution of the issues in, in Libya, the instability in that region will continue. The, the Sahara Desert area is very difficult for us to be able to monitor. Uh, so the United Nations brokered uh, unity agreement, which has not been embraced by either side of the Civil War. Uh, can, can you just, uh, just share with us briefly your uh, prognosis as to whether we have a reasonable chance to get an effective coalition government that can stand up to the, um, the challenges in Libya? Uh, and is the United States playing a strong enough role here? Thank you, Senator Cardin. Uh, I'll, I'll start off by addressing um, your question about efforts to reach a Libyan unity government. Part of the challenge we face in Libya is that even if a a unity government is reached between the two different governments in Libya. That doesn't necessarily solve the problems in Libya in terms of the fighting, the multiple conflicts there. As uh, Professor Lawrence mentioned, there's not just one binary conflict between the Tripoli government and the Tobruk government in Libya. There are multiple conflicts going on in Libya between different regions, between tribal groups, between cities. The conflict doesn't fit into two neat ideological political packages. So there are many, many issues that Libya faces that we have to address. And even if an agreement is reached, it doesn't mean that the two competing governments are actually going to work together. And I think what we need to do 
uh, in terms of the U.S. government, is ratchet up the pressure that we do have, ratchet up the leverage that we do have on those two governments. Well, I understand there is a framework for an agreement. It has not been embraced by your side yet. Is there is that, a framework. That's correct, sir. There is you, a framework. Do you have confidence that if that is embraced, it can work? Well, as I said, even if it's embraced, there still remain challenges to effective cooperation because the level of polarization and the other multiple conflicts could prevent real cooperation. I think the biggest challenge before us is for the two competing governments to reach a unity agreement and then have a sustained counterterrorism campaign that targets the Islamic State and other jihadist militant groups in Libya. That should be the first uh, objective, and that's what we should be trying to, to promote. And in doing that, we need to ratchet up the pressure on both sides by making it clear that we will support additional sanctions against people in both governments that are blocking the unity government. And we, you mean U.S.? The U.S. government, that's yeah. correct. Working with the Europeans who are currently debating that as well. Dr. Lawrence, I'm going to let you answer that question, but I want to expand it a little bit. In our hearings on the Gulf countries, it was clear that they really cherished their relationship with the United States, felt that was critically important for the stability of their own country, but also wanted to see a more aggressive United States involvement in the problem areas, whether it was in Syria or, or dealing with the Iranian issues or dealing in Iraq. They felt that the United States presence was critically important, more so than the other competing powers, uh, particularly Iran, Russia, and even Europe. So in Northern Africa, how important do the countries believe, that is, Tunisia uh, and the other countries we're talking about, how important is the United States uh, participation relative to other regional uh, powers uh, in bringing about a confidence of stability uh, for, for, the, for, the, for their country? Why don't I deal with the second question first and then go back to the, uh, the Libya-specific question. The U.S. role has huge potential, and we're not, we're not doing enough. If you look at, for example, polling data from, from the MENA region, the U.S. is viewed more positively generally in North Africa than in the Middle East. If you look at institutional relationships, the close relationship between the Tunisian military and the U.S. military, even closer than to the French military, the large numbers of the Libyan political class that were educated in the United States, many of which didn't return to the U.S. for decades, these communities that are pro-American are very upset on a regular basis about the lack of U.S. Uh, engagement in North Africa, whether it's uh, helping democracy in Tunisia or seeking democracy for Libya. So there's a, there's a, uh, a feeling there, um, uh, less caused, I would say, by U.S. disengagement, although that's part of the story, but more caused by the huge expectations built up by the revolutions and all of the rhetoric coming from the U.S. government about how important these transitions were to the United States and then lack of follow through uh, in, in, in terms of helping these uh, uh, countries address all the challenges we've been talking about. It's also worth noting, I think, in answer to your first question, that um, Tunisia, Algeria, and Morocco are playing very positive roles on Libya. And all three of them have taken a rigorously neutral stand uh, on Libya that's helpful. No country to the east of Libya is taking a neutral position on Libya. And they're taking po polarizing positions, backing one faction or another. 
in ways that uh, will probably lower the chance for successful agreement or uh, once we have an agreement, success of that agreement and lower and increase the chance for a prolonged civil war in Libya. So th uh, the short answer is regionally look west. Uh, the Algerians and Moroccans and Tunisians are doing a great job on Libya. And, and don't take much advice from the East for the, for the reasons uh, they're included in the premise of your question. Now, specifically on, uh, on the deal, um, uh, one of the interesting aspects of the UN process, let me talk about a, a, a bad thing and a good thing. One of the bad things is that Lyon kept announcing success when he didn't have buy-in. And so, and literally, you would have the UN tweeting, asking the sides to, to sign up to an agreement. We just heard an announcement they'd agreed to. So there's been this, one diplomat described this as crafty triangulation. Um, I see it as problematic because if you keep declaring victory when you don't have victory, uh, you create more problems than you solve. And I, I think um, the new uh, 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 Libya envoy that Ban Ki-moon has named, the new uh, German, um, his name is escaping me right now, uh, has an opportunity to start fresh with the negotiations uh, because we don't have buy-in from either side yet. Um, but one of the positive things that came out of the negotiations, which were well-led, the negotiations were very good, and I have a white paper on it I'm, that I submitted to the State Department. I'd be happy to share with the committee about you know, the nitty-gritty of, of the deal and what the, what the various uh, issues are for each side. Um, but what was very interesting is that Misrata, who are on one side of the, 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 the major conflict in Libya right now, and Zintan, who are on the other side, started to peel away. Now, this is reported as the press as fragmentation on each side, but it was actually a positive development that the two strongest military forces in Libya were seeking a middle ground. Uh, in addition to that, the Algerians have been advocating, including the Warfala, which was a pro-Qaddafi tribe, in a kind of three-way new force that uh, uh, stabilizes Libya and makes this unity agreement work. But I have to agree with uh, him uh, wholeheartedly that, um, and I, again, quoting another senior State Department official, uh, he said his main concern wasn't that Libya gets a deal or doesn't get a deal, it was what was gonna happen once there was a deal. Uh, and it's gonna be very long, slow slog to make the deal work. Thank you very much. Thank you. Senator Flake. Thank you. Thanks for your testimony. Uh, um, the conventional wisdom has been that uh, Tunisia at least has some of the democratic institutions uh, that uh, will help it as it moves forward. Um, that, other than Tunisia, what other country in the Maghreb has uh, that real, I mean, are we just starting from scratch with the others? Um, how long will it take? And uh, first with Tunisia, it, um, you're talking about a robust uh, aid package and, and uh, involvement there for the U.S. Uh, what else does Tunisia need? And then address the, the issue of uh, institutions, uh, civil institutions uh, in the other countries. Thank you. I agree that Tunisia does have a long history of, of institutions. Those institutions were not always effective. They were put to use by authoritarian governments, but there is an educated and effective bureaucracy in Tunisia. Similarly, in Morocco and Algeria, there, is also, uh, there are also effective institutions, bureaucracies. Morocco and Algeria have been relatively stable compared to their neighbors uh, for different reasons. In Morocco, there is a balance of power between the monarchy, which is the executive authority in Morocco, and an Islamist political party that has been integrated into parliamentary politics for more than a decade, which 
coexist. And the King of Morocco's reform package in early 2011 helped, helped uh, satisfy some of the minimal demands that people had for change. Now, the other aspect of Morocco and, and Algeria to some degree, as they look around the region and see what's happened in Libya, they see what happened, has happened further away in Syria, uh, they see the instability in Tunisia, and they think to themselves, well, things could get a lot worse. So maybe the current situation is not all that bad. But Tunisia, uh, Morocco, Algeria have institutions. They certainly need to be strengthened. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done in all three countries, in the justice sector in particular, uh, in education. Um, but the problem that I see is that Tunisia excuse me, Morocco and Algeria face many of the long-term challenges that drive radicalization and many of the same kind of socioeconomic problems that drive youth marginalization as their neighbors. And while they're stable now, we're not sure about what's going to happen down the road. In Algeria, for example, the president has consolidated his power, as far as we know, against certain elements of the military. But oil prices have declined, and Algeria is dependent on oil prices. Uh, on oil revenues to sustain large public spending projects, to sustain subsidies and other economic benefits that have helped buy stability in Algeria over the last decade. So there's a lot of uncertainty about what comes down the road in Algeria and Morocco. It's important to note that Morocco also, despite its stability, has also produced large numbers of foreign fighters that have gone to, to Syria. Uh, the, the, Current estimate is about 1,500 Moroccan fighters in Syria. The number is probably higher. There are also Moroccans turning up in Libya as well, fighting with the Islamic State. So a lot of the problems that we see in Tunisia and other parts of the Arab world are also present in Morocco, in Algeria. In terms of what Tunisia needs, uh, your second question, there's a long list uh, of what it needs. I think the two immediate priorities are security, and the economy, and that's what the government has been focused on almost exclusively. Security and the economy are deeply linked together because Tunisia relies on tourism for about 7% of its GDP, and the terrorist attacks in March and June, which killed over 50 people in Tunis and a seaside resort, have hit the Tunisian economy very hard. A number of tourist resorts and hotels have closed down, impacting the Tunisian economy. So. What Tunisia needs is jobs, economic growth, um, and in order to get that, it needs to get a handle on its security. Once it starts getting a handle on the security, it can start dealing with the many other problems, education reform, youth marginalization, corruption, that also fuel discontent in Tunisia. Go ahead. Uh, building on what Haim ably outlines, uh, I'll add a few data points for you. Number one, thousands of North Africans, including from Algeria too, although in smaller numbers, and Libyans have gone to, uh, to fight in Syria. Hundreds have been killed from each of the countries, and hundreds have returned. And there's some very interesting anecdotal evidence that those returning from the conflicts are falling into the same miserable economic conditions that propelled them and, and looking for new jihad. So we literally have kids escaping from the battlefields in Iraq and Syria, 
at the threat of being shot for, for desertion, returning home and, and, and not finding any opportunities and looking for a new struggle, a new fight. Um, so this is something that uh, economic assistance to these countries and uh, 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 economic messaging from the regimes uh, you know, would, would clearly uh, begin to address. Um, as Haim pointed out, uh, to, uh, tourism is the third largest, uh, well, he, he said I'm talking about seven percent, but it's the third largest industry in Tunisia. But the other thing that terrorist attacks in Tunisia did was it dried up foreign direct investments and local uh, private investment, which is not seeking to invest in Tunisia anymore because of instability. Um, Tunisia uh, needs, as he mentioned, security help, but also security sector reform, as outlined very nicely in the crisis group report economic help, but also economic reform, and it needs transitional justice. And all of these things are things the U.S. Uh, can help with. On Libya, let me just mention that the, there, it's not that there are no institutions in Libya. We often hear that. There are institutions in Libya. There are lawyers, and there's a justice system, and there's ministries. The, the problem is that they were significantly weakened by the Gaddafi regime and haven't been built up since. Right now, the, the brightest hope, well, the two brightest hopes in Libya are two things. A robust private sector, which is actually still growing and, and in terms of like cafes and, 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 and small service, that's still growing in Libya. And the other is municipalities. Municipalities are functioning and a lot of the U.S. assistance has turned towards the municipalities upon which uh, um, good things could be developed. Um, two more data points for Algeria. We didn't not have an Arab Spring in Algeria. We had the largest protest since 1988. And more importantly, according to uh, Ministry of Interior Statistics, we have over 10,000 micro-protests in Algeria every year. In Morocco, we increasingly have micro-protests. In their Arab Spring, we had a million in 80 cities simultaneously, unheard of level of protest. Mm -hmm. They had a big Arab Spring. They're having thousands of micro-protests in Morocco. These micro-protests are mostly about economic issues, also health and, and, and other things, education, but, but um, uh, uh, nuts and bolts, service delivery issues that the crash in oil prices isn't helping and that um, uh, 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 there are small things we can help them do and do better uh, 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 to address uh, the demands of youth. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for your testimony. This is uh, very uh, helpful. Um, we had a hearing yesterday in uh, one of our subcommittees on the response to <clears throat> buildup of Russian propaganda, and a lot of the same phrases got used there that get used here, this lack of American focus, this lack of American attention, this lack of American leadership. Um, and I sometimes don't really understand what those words mean, um, because we got a lot of smart people at the State Department. We have a lot of people that are spending a lot of time focused on these problems, trying to sort them out. Um, and so, uh, Mr. Lawrence, I wanted to sort of drill down on a point you made. Um, you talked about the fact that there were expectations built up, and then we didn't make good on those expectations. Um, and my sense is that that's not an expectation that there was going to be an extra two or three people at the State Department working every day on Tunisia. That was an expectation that there were going to actually be resources that were going to be delivered on the ground to help support this transition. Um, now, the president asked for double the amount that he had last year, um, but last year's amount of money that we delivered to Tunisia was about $60 million, somewhere around that. This is a country with a GDP of $47 billion. I mean, that's 
that's not a transformational amount of aid. That's not an amount of money wherever it goes that's going to make a difference. So um, I, I get the critique about whether our strategy is right, but isn't this at some level, when you're talking about both these countries, but in particular Tunisia, which is at the moment of making the swing, isn't this really a matter of just not simply having the necessary resources to uh, back up our talk with real action? You've answered your own question in many ways, but let me uh, uh, flesh out some of the points that you made uh, and that I agree with wholeheartedly. Um, to quote Ann Patterson before this committee last week, I believe, or the week before, um, the State Department has been mostly focused on crisis management, and so there's a certain amount of bandwidth that could have been uh, 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 oriented towards North Africa that got sucked up in solving Syria, dealing with Yemen, massive refugee crises, uh, increasing counterterrorism uh, threats. Um, and, and frankly, uh, at one level, and Haim mentioned this and I mentioned it, um, we actually need more diplomats in the embassies and more people at the State Department focusing on North Africa. That actually matters. And one of the things, for example, that AID, I mean, AID has a pretty big Tunis uh, Tunisia and Libya teams, but most of what AID does is farm out resources to NGOs that can do the, the, the heavy lifting, the hard work. Um, let me mention also in passing uh, something I didn't say in answer to the previous question to keep myself short, but you have 1.2 million Libyans of a country of five and a half million living in Tunisia right now, and Tunisians and Libyans need almost identical types of training. So you could, that's a twofer. You could start training Libyans and Tunisians in the same security sector related, justice sector related, uh, all these different fields, economic development, entrepreneurship in Tunisia right now at very low cost. You know, we're talking about programs that cost millions, not billions, um, uh, uh, and take advantage of the opportunity that we have there. Now, in terms of um, the paltry U.S. aid, I couldn't agree more. I mean, Tunisia before and after the revolution was ninth in U.S. assistance to MENA. Now, Jordan needs a lot of money. They have a lot of Syrian refugees. Lebanon needs help, uh, uh, other countries. But uh, everyone in the region knows we are not supporting Tunisia in, in a way that matches our rhetoric, and that is disturbing. It's disturbing when you see decreasing uh, positive numbers for democracy among young people, uh, when they see us, uh, uh, in their minds, abandoning um, our own rhetoric and going back to the old tried and true ways of, of, of backing local authoritarian leaders uh, on security grounds. Um, so it's not that we can't address security and, and counterterrorism issues, as Haim said. It's that we have to walk and chew gum at the same time. And, and that means engaging young people. Uh, there are many ways to do this. Uh, let me mention one. You have hundreds of thousands of unemployed university graduates in Tunisia that took part in a revolution. Some of them have been given public sector jobs with no meaning because the public sector doesn't have anything for them to do, right? Uh, the traditional private sector can't absorb them. What do we do? How about national service projects where you put young Tunisian university grads uh, out in the field like Peace Corps, this has been discussed, no one's done anything yet, to deal with literacy, to deal with public health, to deal with, to deal with. Um, a, a, an ex-Peace Corps volunteer from Morocco started Core Africa. She's been trying to get into Tunisia and hasn't found a way in yet. She's starting a new branch in Mali. But uh, there is a huge human capital potential uh, in Tunisia, huge human capital potential in the Libyan diaspora, and we're not taking advantage of it. 
Um, Mr. Malka, uh, let me ask you a question specifically about uh, Libya. Um, this is yet another proxy war in the region in which you have um, uh, Egypt and the UAE on one side, Qatar on the other side. Um, are we best off uh, trying to increase our intervention inside the country, focus our resources on trying to solve the problem through direct intervention by talking to the sides um, of this conflict who, as I understand, aren't always terribly interested in talking to us? Um, or are we better off working with the funders um, and with the regional players who seem to be digging in on opposite sides of the, of the conflict? Which is a, I, I mean, I know the answer is probably both, but let's just posit a world in which we don't have the resources um, or the bandwidth to do both. Which are we better off? Where are we better off putting our resources? Sure. Well, we certainly need to be talking to our allies in the Middle East. Uh, Turkey also has been playing an active role in Libya and other parts of North Africa. And I think you know, the fact that they are so engaged and invested in North Africa, as you mentioned, the Qataris, the Emiratis, the Egyptians, proves how important this region is to the core interests of the Middle East. Um, I think it would be a mistake to just pursue the policies of one side or the other side. Because as I mentioned in my oral testimony, oftentimes uh, external actors are driving policies that actually undermine our own interests and perpetuate the conflict. And I would argue that by having Libya as a proxy struggle between several Gulf states and Turkey, uh, on the other side, perpetuates the conflict. And that's not in our interest. We are better served by supporting the UN process, pushing for a unity government, trying to get the different parties together, and branching out and reaching out to other elements uh, of, of the two Libyan governments that we haven't been actively engaged in, and trying to promote a unity government as a first step. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Gentlemen, I was in uh, Morocco a few months ago, and I, I couldn't, the, the feel there is so much different than uh, right next door in Tunisia. And I, and I appreciate your statements about, well, they have problems too, they have foreign fighters that have left, and they have these micro-protests. And um, I, you know, I, I guess I disagree a bit that um, the, that the, there's a, uh, some similarity. I mean, they, they are so different. Uh, the, the feel, I mean, look, a micro-protest is one thing. Taking up arms and killing people at a resort and what have you uh, uh, is something else. I mean, we have micro-protests here in the United States and, and live with it. We have micro-protests in my own home every day, and uh, somehow we get by. Uh, but um, it, it, the situation in Morocco seems to me to be something that we can live with, the Moroccans can live with, the world can live with. But the situation in Tunisia is so much different. And so I, I guess I, I beg to differ with you to some degree in, in trying to uh, equalize uh, those countries. Tell me why I'm wrong. Sir, I didn't seem to, uh, I didn't intend to indicate that all the countries were similar. I think every country in the region is very different. And in fact, in my written testimony, I actually uh, detail how they're different, how each country has a different political model, a different economic model, different historical experiences that shape their society and their politics, and are at different stages of their political and economic development. So um, 
I don't think either one of us thinks that Morocco is the same as Tunisia, is the same as Algeria. What I think is important to note about Morocco and what sets it apart from the other countries in the region is that Morocco, by and large, has a strategy to deal with the many problems that it faces. It has a strong executive that can set policy and that has control of the bureaucracy, importantly, the security services, the, the, the economic structure, that can help implement that policy. The and other why country, isn't that happening in Tunisia? Well, in, part of it is a problem of legitimacy. Uh, who has legitimacy? Tunisia, in many ways, is still, well, now it's past the first uh, part of its transition. Um, but there is still deep political polarization within the political establishment in Tunisia between Ennahda on the one side, Nida Tunis on the other, which has deep ties to the former regime, and also the labor unions, which are very strong. So while they have come together toward political compromise and consensus, there are still these deep problems within Tunisia and this deep political polarization. Nobody uh, is in really in control of all of the institutions of the government. The central government is still weak. There are questions of authority. There are questions of legitimacy, which you don't necessarily have in Morocco, where you have a strong executive. Thank you. Mr. Lawrence? Dr. Lawrence? You are correct to point out that Morocco is different and Morocco is in better shape uh, than its neighbors. Um, we, we often have de debates, this very debate in the academic circles, you know, about what's similar and what's different between the countries. Um, and I'm often arguing that there are important similarities that get overlooked. I think that the, the issues facing youth are very similar. The protests, uh, uh, slogans, and, 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 and culture are very similar. The uh, uh, tactics of micro-protest are very similar. The uh, uh, networks sending fighters to Libya are all connected. The huge informal sectors, 50% of the economy in every one of the countries we're talking about and the majority of the people working in them are all connected and all networked. So we <clears throat> separate Morocco or any of these countries out at our own peril by not understanding what the connections are and what the differences are. The, um, in terms of the, uh, the amount of bandwidth that we should be applying to these problems um, and in agreeing with that, that sort of, I think, question beneath your question, I'd say between the four countries we're talking about today, we should be putting probably 40% of our effort on Tunisia and 40% on Libya and probably 10% on Algeria and 10% on, 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 uh, on Morocco for precisely the reasons you're talking about. Morocco is a lot further along. Um, but Morocco, uh, as I said, um, uh, uh, had a huge Arab Spring, continues to have um, uh, 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 deep poverty and uh, uh, problems that need to be addressed. And don't forget, and this is important for Algeria, Morocco, and Tunisia, the Morocco has an Islamist party, a pro-monarchy Islamist party, that's the largest party and that the prime minister is controlled by, right? So Morocco's kind of made its peace with the Islamists in its way. Uh, uh, Tunisia's making its peace, although it's more deeply polarized. And uh, um, uh, Algeria has made its peace, but there's some problems there in terms of uh, the political class in general and the weakness of political parties. But 
they've all had similar experiences in terms of the secular Islamist dialogue. They're all learning from each other. And I don't think any of these countries really has the silver bullet or the, 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 the perfect model for the others to follow. Uh, as Haim said, Morocco is on its own path. Um, it's aware of its challenges. And the main concern of Morocco watchers is that the reform process slows to such a glacial pace that there is no progress. Um, and, 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 and all friends of Morocco want to do is, is help accelerate that process. So for example, if you put me uh, 10 more, 15 more seconds, Morocco passed a wonderful new constitution. It hasn't passed most of the organic laws that put the constitution in motion. If you look at the most pro-Morocco websites, they're talking really only so far, including several packages of laws passed, about the increased participation of women. Uh, in the decentralization organic law. But there's almost none of these post-new constitution projects that have borne the fruit promised in 2011. So this, this is the, the concern about the pace of reform in Morocco. If it slows too much, Morocco will uh, uh, suffer instability. Thank you. I, you know, my time's almost up, and I wanted to ask a bit about, I, I think, and, and maybe we'll get this in another round, but uh, we really need to drill down into the details uh, in Libya. You know, I think the world's focused on these two groups that are trying to make peace. I think you, both of you have underscored that that's just the tip of the iceberg, that uh, because of the numerous other conflicts that are going on, uh, even if that works out, there's gonna be a lot more challenges there. And I'd, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that, but my time is up, so I'll yield the floor, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thanks to the witnesses for great testimony. Question about uh, Algeria, question about Algeria and Morocco. So on Algeria, President Bouteflika is in his fourth term, I think, and, and relatively old. As you look forward, what do you think the post-Bouteflika political um, kind of status will be? Uh, which, what's your prediction about Algeria post-Bouteflika? I'll go first. Thanks. That's the huge question, because what happens in Algeria will affect every country in the Maghreb and every country in the Sahel and potentially Europe as well. Algeria is a crucial country, and in the 1990s it faced a, a, fought a brutal civil war, a war against terrorism, where more than 150,000 people were killed, and Algeria exported instability to the entire region and even to Europe where there were terror attacks linked to Algeria. So what happens in Algeria is crucial. President Bouteflika came to power and ushered in a decade of stability and security free of the widespread violence that we saw in the 90s. Sure, there are still protests, socioeconomic protests, as Professor Lawrence has mentioned. There's still an Al-Qaeda insurgency uh, in the mountains of Algeria, which occasionally attacks civilians and, and security forces. But by and large, President Bouteflika has brought stability to Algeria in part because of high oil prices, which allowed him to promote an economic stabilization policy to provide for the needs of his population. It's not clear that whoever takes his place is going to have the same kind of assets, tools, and power to hold together the various different constituent groups and power centers uh, within Algeria. Uh, oil prices, are declining, so for this year, the first year uh, in a long time, Algeria has had a budget deficit, a $50 billion deficit for uh, 2015, where it had to tap into its uh, reserves. That's a worrying sign for 
Algerians most importantly because it was in the 1980s when the price of oil collapsed <clears throat> that they began the process of political reform, which led to uh, elections that were won by the Islamists and then led to the Civil War. So this, the Algerians carry a lot of historical baggage with them um, from that period. And my concern is that what comes after Bouteflika is not going to be as stable, it's not going to be as certain, um, and it could have a negative impact on the region as well. I don't have much to add, um, and I'm curious to hear your Algeria-Morocco question, mm -hmm. um, but let me add, when Bouteflika came to power in 1999, he came to power on a reconciliatory platform. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the aspects of um, uh, making Algerian politics right that was important to him was getting control of the military and security uh, forces. With the sacking of uh, General Median, uh, Tofik Median, in, uh, in August, uh, in many ways I believe he's accomplished the last thing he intended to accomplish. So I'm actually looking for, and I've even heard talk about a four and a half term presidency. You know, I feel like Bouteflika feels, uh, and the people around him feels like he's just about done. That was like the last piece of the Bouteflika puzzle. Now, if you are pro Bouteflika, like a lot of Algerians are, this was getting control of occult forces in Algeria. If you're anti-Bouteflika and the corruption around Bouteflika, you saw the DRS as the last standing institution strong enough to keep the Bouteflika uh, clan in check. So you see the sacking as a problem. Um, this just augurs for more factional fighting among Algerian elites uh, following Bouteflika. Um, and I don't see um, an accelerated push towards democratization in Algeria in part because of what I was talking about, elite uh, um, um, these struggles. If I can add one more point, the fact that you have so many micro-protests in all these countries, including Algeria, means that politics doesn't work. Um, uh, uh, citizens with grievances don't go through political parties and they don't go through NGOs, they go to the streets. And then a oil-rich regime responds with direct aid in response to protests. So that's a broken political system. And it won't be until NGOs are given more room to maneuver, which they don't have yet, and political parties develop some strength in Algeria that you'll have real politics. I agree with the point you made earlier about Tunisia, that, the, the, that we need to really help shore them up and help them succeed. I'm also very worried about the next chapter in Algeria. And your point, uh, Mr. Maka, that Algeria will affect everything else. Let me move on to the Algeria-Morocco. There's a lot of similarities between the countries, including that President Bouteflika was born in Morocco, so there's many similarities. Um, uh, there's some significant differences, oil rich versus, you know, not a lot of oil assets on the Moroccan side. But the, the poor state of relations between those two countries, it just seems like if, if we're interested in stability in the region, doing what we can to help better the state of relations between Algeria and Morocco is really important. So what would your advice to, 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 to us be on that? That's a tough one because both sides are entrenched in their position and... With respect to Western Sahara and other issues. With respect to Western Sahara and, and a general regional rivalry, um, which from our perspective doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah. And with the security situation in the region being as it is, I think probably more difficult and challenging than it has been in at least 15 years, it would be in the interest of Algeria and Morocco and the region and the United States and Europe for the Algerians and Moroccans to work more closely together. It's in everyone's interest for that to happen. Unfortunately, I don't see a lot of 
potential for progress on that front at the moment. I don't see a lot of potential for Algeria and Morocco to resolve their differences and come together and start cooperating more closely. But the U.S. government, despite the fact that there's not a lot of progress, I think that it's something that the U.S. government should continue to focus on and continue to urge both sides to cooperate, even in small ways, to help improve security. I'll add two data points to that, uh, uh, and I agree with that. One is there have been a lot of attempts for Morocco and Algeria to cooperate on energy, on borders, uh, on uh, 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 other economic activities, and every time it seems like there's going to be a breakthrough, the Western Sahara issue blows up. A minister travels to Moscow, makes an offhanded comment, and the next thing you know, uh, 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 everything falls apart again. Um, I've, the second point is I've long argued that um, as Morocco democratizes, solutions for Western Sahara get more, get possible. So uh, uh, Nabila Munib, the head of this delegation that's been dealing with the Sweden-Ikea dispute mm -hmm. and all that, right? She, she said once in a conference I was at uh, that the problem with Western Sahara and Morocco wasn't that Moroccans didn't believe it was Western Saharan, is that the Western Saharan issue had always been la domaine royale, royale domain, mm -hmm. and that Moroccan citizens really had no say. In, 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 and now that the political parties and civil society are given openings and then it's shut down again and openings again to go down in the Western Sahara area, you're increasingly uh, uh, have, hearing more about human rights in the Western Sahara area and seeing political organization in the Western Sahara area. And I think the more progress that's made in democratizing the North and the Western Sahara region, the more chances we'll have for an eventual opening downstream mm -hmm. um, in terms of uh, the Algerian-Moroccan dispute. Right. Thank you. Thanks, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Dr. Lawrence and Mr. Malka, for being here today. Uh, Dr. Lawrence, uh, you mentioned just talking about some of the challenges facing youth in Morocco as well as Algeria. Mr. Malka, in your testimony, you talked about radicalized youth issues. But can, you, can you lay out the, the demographic uh, of the youth population in North Africa? If I can just make, because I have the data, right, and then I'll, I'll defer to Chaim, which I mispronounce it. Um, the uh, median age in Tunisia is 31. That's past transition, you know, the 30 is the cutoff that demographers use. The median age in Algeria and, 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 and Morocco is 27. The median age in Egypt and Libya is about 24. And then when you get down to the Mauritania, Western Sahara, that area, you're talking about median age of 19. Mm -hmm. um, so we have... And the median age in Libya and Egypt is 24, you said? 24. So, so we have youth bulge issues for the medium term in Morocco and Algeria, for a longer term in Algeria and Libya, and for a much longer term in the Sahel area. Um, but in Tunisia, we're dealing with a different demographic. I don't, that's one data point. I don't know if, Chaim, you want to say something more about that. Sure. I'll just add that, you know, that the demographic issue is changing also. I mean, we talk about unemployment. Uh, we talk about the lack of jobs. But if we look at some of the other social factors that are going on, for example, the age of marriage has increased dramatically in North Africa, and it's comparable to that of, of Europe now. It's much higher than in other parts of the Middle East. In some places, in some countries, it's above 30 for a man to get married. Now, um, you know, that has an impact, direct impact, on social stability. If somebody doesn't have a job, if they don't have a family, then they don't have any responsibility. Therefore, they can go off to Libya to get a job. They can go to Libya to fight with a jihadist group, they can go to Syria to seek adventure and get married. So these issues are deeply tied to uh, radicalization, to some of the other social 
issues that are going on in, in the region. I think we need to understand better how these different social issues underneath the surface are affecting the politics, the stability, the security. And so that delay in, in, in starting a family, is that primarily economic driven, uh, no opportunity, and so they put that off just? I think it's directly linked to, to economic opportunity, to the lack of jobs, because in order to get married, one has to have an apartment, one has to have uh, money to, to, to pay for a wedding, to be able to uh, pay a dowry and, and sustain a family. And so in terms of our, our economic policies through State Department and others, public diplomacy efforts, uh, trade, economic efforts, have we adjusted State Department policies to meet that challenge? Well, part of the challenge is not just what we're doing, it's what these countries yeah. need to do. And we've talked a lot about U.S. strategy and objectives and what we need to do, but these countries need to do lots of different things to help us help them. So Tunisia, for example, almost five years after the revolution, still doesn't have a coherent foreign investment law. So it makes it difficult for us to want to invest in Tunisian companies because there is no clear banking rules, there are no clear insurance regulations, Tunisian capital is sitting on the sidelines and unwilling to invest in the local economy because they're uncertain about the economic reconciliation law and whether they're going to be persecuted or prosecuted for past financial crimes. So it's not just about what we need to do. These countries also have to take certain steps to improve their economy, to disentangle the authoritarian economic systems that perpetuate unemployment, lack of education, uh, monopolies, import regulations that support smuggling in the informal economy, and a long list of other economic reforms that they need to enact. Dr. Lawrence. Um, just two quick data points, Tunisia-specific, which I think is the most important that we're dealing with today. Um, Tunisia is working on all these laws. Two MPs from the Finance Committee were here last week, and, and, and they're along the way, and they're having discussions, and there are drafts going up to Parliament, but um, democracy is slow. And, and these things take months to negotiate. And so Tunisia will have an investment law probably in wintertime, uh, maybe a banking law next year. Uh, this economic reconciliation package has been taking forever and it's caused a lot of consternation. So um, we're talking about a two, three year window before Tunisian reforms begin to have the salutary impact that we're looking for to, to help us. So we're gonna have to support Tunisia independent of their reform and get, getting out ahead of the reform. Um, Another data point is uh, uh, Tunisia is having a hard time meeting payroll. So how do you reform if you can't even pay your government workers? So let me give you. Uh, what percentage of the public in Tunisia is employed by the government? Oh, it's 25% uh, in that range, 20, 25%. Um, religious education. Tunisia has the weakest religious education infrastructure in, 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 in the three countries, uh, Tunisia to the west. 10% of imams in mosques have any religious training. Only half of them have college degrees. So you have imams in the mosques who need to be trained, right, who have received almost no training. And this is a legacy of the Ben Ali era when there was no investment in religious education. And this gets back to messaging, if you permit me just 10 more seconds, we're not doing well in messaging. There's a whole youth culture across the region. We as in our, our public yeah, diplomacy yeah, efforts. We, we haven't really dipped in enough. We're doing a lot of, you know, counterterrorism messaging, but we're not 
engaging enough uh, with our youth and their youth, you know, talking about uh, uh, common interests. We could do a lot in the area of cultural exchange and, and messaging to young people that we're not doing yet. Well, we'd love to follow up with you on how we can increase uh, opportunities to engage in, in better public diplomacy efforts, particularly with that demographic. I think that's something that we could be uh, very much involved with and effective with. I uh, want to shift a little bit to the Sinai Peninsula a little bit, uh, talking about uh, Egypt's counterterrorism efforts in the Sinai Peninsula and what the United States can do to help uh, combat the threat of extremism in the Sinai. The Egyptians have a growing problem in the Sinai, and it is not just contained in Sinai. It's shifting over to the other side of the Suez Canal. Uh, we saw just this morning um, uh, another attack in, in northern Sinai, but there have been attacks um, in, in Egypt proper as well. So this is an ongoing challenge for the Egyptians that is getting worse. The problem in Sinai is not just an issue of simple counterterrorism, because Sinai has been a neglected region for decades. There's not one government that has been responsible for neglecting Sinai, but it's many, many of, of Egypt's past governments and policies that have largely alienated the population. So there's not only a Bedouin, a domestic or indigenous Bedouin population that has uh, gone over and, and started to join radical groups, but there's a radicalized Palestinian population, primarily in northern Sinai, with connections to Gaza uh, that is also radicalized. So uh, this seems to be a long-term challenge for the Egyptians, and the politics of exclusion in Egypt have fanned the flames and made this problem worse because as the Islamists that were in power have been weakened and divided, some of those Islamists who at one point may have chosen the path of politics are now choosing the path of violence and that strengthens the ranks of jihadists and other militant groups in Sinai. And what should the United States policy be to address that? Excuse me? What effects, changes should United States policy take, undertake to help Egypt address this? Well, we, we help uh, with general counterterrorism and, and military cooperation, uh, intelligence sharing. That's been ongoing. I'm not sure that we have a silver bullet for how the Egyptians can, can address that problem. This is a, a long-term threat that they face. Uh, we can try to encourage more political inclusion, more tolerance for political voices in, in Egyptian politics, but that is a long-term process uh, that's not going to change the current environment in Sinai anytime soon. Thanks, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you both for being here this morning. There have been a number of stories that I've read, news reports, about um, Tunisia's transition to democracy and the role that women played in that the positive role. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the role of women in Tunisia and compare that to, say, Morocco and Algeria and um, what we can do to support um, a positive role for women in those societies. Do you want me to go first? Okay. Um, Tunisia suffered before the revolution from the same problem all these states suffered. Uh, it's what we call in the Middle East studies business uh, regime feminism, where feminists became so close to the regime to get uh, uh, political and economic rights guaranteed that the, the, when the regimes themselves became disqualified, the women's movements were negatively affected. So for example, the, the leading feminist organization in Tunisia took six to nine months after the revolution to even have a fruitful meeting 
without a lot of uh, war, you know, clashing between the, the, the groups because of the closeness to the Ben Ali regime and the Trabelsi family and, and all of the corruption uh, that came before. Um, they were reorganized enough by 2013 that they played a major role uh, in the uh, um, uh, 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 keeping democracy on track in Tunisia and keeping women's rights a central focus in the summer of 13. And there are some people that feel that Tunisian women should have gotten the Nobel Peace Prize along with others, and they played an important role. Uh, Tunisia has a long history of uh, parity for women. They've done an amazing job getting women into parliament. I think it's 38% in parliament, one of the highest in the world. They had gender parity according to one UNDP metric before the revolution. Um, and so uh, for me, um, elite Tunisian women have done well in the past. They're doing well now. I think my main concern about women uh, in the other countries, including Tunisia, is that uh, poorer women, marginal women, working in the informal sector aren't doing well. And the uh, Nobel Prize winning uh, leader, Abessi, yesterday had some very interesting data on unemployment among uh, rural Tunisian women, and it's, it's pretty alarming. Thank you, I don't have much to add to that. I mean, can, you do, can you do the comparison to Morocco, to Morocco. and Algeria? Sure, I, th I think, you know, at the elite level, again, in Morocco and Algeria, you'll also find women who are at the forefront, who are active, who are well-educated, articulate, um, and play a role. I mean, you have government ministers in Morocco uh, that are women. So at the elite level, I'm always impressed when I go to Morocco and when I meet with uh, Moroccan business leaders, Tunisian leaders, it's always uh, a woman who's spearheading and leading the, the delegation oftentimes, and, and they're active um, economically. But it's the lower level of society, uh, which is primarily uneducated. Um, you have a large problem with rural illiteracy for women in many of these countries. And so the problem is not that the elite uh, are, are not progressing, but that the gap between the elite and the, the uh, more underprivileged sectors of society is widening dramatically. And is it widening more for women than men in those societies? I would say it is in part because of gaps in literacy, primarily in, in a place like Morocco and Algeria. Um, you talked about, um, or you alluded to ISIS fighters from um, Tunisia and Morocco and um, Northern Africa. Is there a reason why those societies have served as fertile recruiting grounds, maybe more fertile even than some other more repressive um, societies? That's one of the huge questions that we, that we just keep, keep trying to answer and, and keep trying to f figure out. I mean, it's really an irony that the country with the most hope for political progress, for changing uh, the social, political, economic dynamics, Tunisia, has produced the largest number of foreign fighters in Syria, more than 4,000 foreign fighters in Syria since 2011, and the largest number of foreign fighters in Libya now fighting with uh, ISIS. There's not one reason for this. There are many reasons, and we keep trying to analyze the drivers of radicalization in these countries. Some people join because of ideological reasons. Some people join because of economic reasons. Some people join because they want uh, adventure and or a sense of power. So there's lots of reasons. But what I think is um, you know, important... When, when, I'm sorry. Let me just dig down on that a little bit further. When you talk about there are lots of reasons, how do we determine 
what those reasons are. Are those based on, I mean, we haven't done a poll, I assume, of ISIS fighters. So these are based on anecdotal interviews with people who have gone off to fight. But before it continues, there's actually been some polling of why your friend joined ISIS. So okay. we actually have polling data on that, but go, go continue. Uh, no, and there, there, you know, there's anecdotal evidence from, for example, I was recently in Tunisia and spoke with a young man who had a job at a production company. He had told us that two of his friends from high school, from his gang in, in the neighborhood, and I don't mean that in the negative sense, just his group of friends, right. went off to fight in Syria and were, were on Facebook with him trying to encourage him uh, to go to Syria. So I asked him, you know, why did they leave and go fight in Syria? And why did you stay? And he didn't really have a, a good answer. Um, and security services are working very hard to try to build profiles of jihadist fighters and to try to understand why people are going to, uh, to fight jihad. And they're having a tough time coming up with the profiles as well because there is no single profile. Yeah. One of the interesting things that, that I learned on my recent trip to Tunisia, I was, I was going to speak with a civil society activist um, in Tunis and I was walking um, into the building, just sort of a, a decrepit, you know, nondescript building. I was walking up the hallway and, and into the office and I saw lots of pictures and, and posters on the wall of the revolution. People, young people, uh, waving Tunisian flags and um, out in the streets and protesting and, and demanding a better future. Those pictures demonstrated and captured the hope that many young people had of changing their societies, of changing their futures, changing their destinies. And when they saw that that, that, that reality wasn't changing as quickly as they expected it to change, they started to lose hope. And it's that despair, it's that despair which is driving people to Syria, to Libya. And what's interesting is it's not just Syria and Libya. Despair is driving people to take their lives into their own hands and try to cross the Mediterranean Sea and get to Europe. The people are committing suicide in Tunisia, young people in, in higher numbers, and it's very hard to get accurate numbers of this, but jihadism and radicalization is one avenue for people who feel despair and hopelessness. Rising expectations. Yeah. If, if I may add, I think the simplest rubric to approximate everything you said and why I focused on it in my oral testimony is inclusion-exclusion. You're included politically, you're going to be more likely to to not pursue these. You're included economically. You're you're more, um, uh, and 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 just to offer some data points uh, on what Haim just said at the end. There have been 400 self-immolations since Bouazizi, including more just last month in Tunisia. Um, so there's uh, various types of escapism. There's escapism through suicide. There's escapism through uh, 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 going to fight a jihad. There's escapism running to Europe. There's uh, depression. There's, at one point, a Libyan expert said, we don't need 10,000 UN peacekeepers in Libya. We need 10,000 psychiatrists, you know? So, there, so there's society-wide yeah. uh, youth dislocation and despair uh, that need to be addressed. And so, as I say, in all of our strategizing and in all of our thinking, think youth. Think, how does this program affect youth? How am I including youth into it? Thank you both. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I want to go back to Egypt just a minute, if we may, and then I have one quick question on Tunisia. I'd like to come back to that. 
Um, but first, let's talk about Egypt. I'm, I'm concerned, Secretary Kerry just in August had a dialogue over there and, and is encouraging Congress to um, sort of turn a blind eye to some of the, the social concerns and governmental uh, concern or governance concerns uh, to continue to support them uh, from a security uh, cooperation perspective. Do you think we're finding the right balance between encouraging them, to, uh, LCC particularly, in, in the direction of um, uh, good governance uh, at the same time that we obviously are still supporting them um, from a security cooperation perspective? Would you respond to that, um, uh, Mr. Malka? Um, I heard Mr. Malka, so. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. I, I I'll thought take you, the first I thought you were telling and, him, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> I'll Clark, take the first sorry. stab and then I'll. <laughs> Um, the short answer is no. Um, I think when it comes to these sort of authoritarian uh, uh, leaders, um, we, we've been hearing from civil society in the region for decades, and we know what you do. What you do is you signal your displeasure in public and private ways, in ways that make things better. You, as, I, as I mentioned, there are 177 parliamentarians we could get released from jail. There are hundreds with death penalties for crimes being committed we could help get out. Just as the beginning of the 40,000 Egyptians that have been jailed. So you're, what you're certain, saying then is we're yeah. really sending conflicting messages, is that right? Yeah, we're sending conflicting messages and it's, it's not only demoralizing Egyptians, the 90% that didn't show up to vote, it's demoralizing the whole region. Like, what are you doing? So are you right? concerned that, that El Sisi turns to, to Moscow recently um, as, as a, a function of this or is this related? Absolutely. I mean, he turned to Moscow in part because he thought he could get um, support without strings. And this is a real problem. And so you use the word balance. Balance is the right word. I was the co-chair of the U.S.-Egypt Science and Technology Fund for four years. And it was part of that $250 million, I don't know what it's at right now, uh, 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 assistance that we, that we... We benefit more from that program or as much as the Egyptians do, right? A lot of our, our arms manufacturers, right, our uh, agricultural, you know, it's, it's not that the Egyptian assistance, that's why there's a big lobby for it. It's not just that people love Sisi, right? These, this, this Egyptian assistance that goes back to Camp David benefits uh, the U.S. In, in, in a number of ways, business community, science community, agriculture, military. And peace in the region with their relationship with Israel the yeah, last decade yeah. and or so. Yeah, and so I'm, I'm all for full engagement with Egypt. It's more about signaling. Right? Are you signaling that you're concerned? Are you helping getting some people out of jail? We recently spent a, a, a lot of political capital getting Mohammed Sultan out of jail. Mohammed Sultan is now outspoken, and the Egyptians may be regretting letting him out. Um, but that, that sends an important message to everybody, to Islamists, moderate Islamists, radical Islamists, non-Islamists, secular opposition in Egypt, the 15,000 that have been arrested that aren't Islamists in Egypt, you know, that we care about more than just uh, geopolitical stability and that we would, and, and that we understand that long-term geopolitical stability depends in part on democratization uh, of these societies and opening up on human rights. And also that the economy is, is moving. Right now, Egypt's economy is not. All the indicators are terrible on the Egyptian economy. And there's so many, so many checks the Gulf countries are gonna be able so to So you write. create a disenfranchised, particularly young people coming to the workforce early in their career. Yeah. They're disenfranchised. You've mentioned that in Tunisia. Uh, and the depression you're talking about, yeah. the suicide rates and so Just forth. Just as bad in Egypt. Just as bad in Egypt, yeah. is that right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Chaim, do you want to add something? Yeah. It's difficult to strike yeah. the right balance between our military cooperation and, and support for human rights. I mean, Sisi is playing a different game. The Gulf states are playing a different game. The Russians are playing a different game. And the Egyptians know that 
they have alternatives. When we were debating here, and it's an important debate, whether there was a military coup uh, in, in July of 2013, when we were debating that, the Gulf countries were writing checks for billions of dollars, saying, okay, if you're gonna cut aid, if you're gonna hold up the transfer of weapons, no problem, we have other alternatives. Um, and that weakens the American hand because Egypt is important for lots of things, mm -hmm. for the overflight rights, for the preferential treatment in the Suez Canal, for Arab-Israeli peace, for its center of gravity, not only in the, the Levant, but also uh, in North Africa as well. Uh, and that's important. And those serve a lot of global American interests. So trying to promote human rights and trying to get President Sisi uh, to do what he clearly doesn't want to do when we have not a lot of leverage is, is difficult. What I think we need to be focusing on in Egypt and in other countries as well is less about talking about democracy and more about tolerance and inclusion, inclusion and, and, and rethinking this, this tolerance that many countries like Egypt, which used to be very cosmopolitan, multi-ethnic, multi-religious societies, once upheld, we need to promote this, this inclusivity and this tolerance in Egypt. Well, when you've got Tunisia, I'd like to go back to that in the time uh, remaining that, you know, you, after the uh, overthrow of uh, President Ben Ali, uh, something like 20%, as I've seen estimates as high as 20% of the, of the uh, uh, mosques there were dominated by radical uh, imams. And so that throws another source of imbalance in Tunisia, which so far has been a model um, in terms of what we can hope for in these countries in that, in that area. Are we doing what we should be doing in Tunisia to, you know, to support the balance toward tolerance, as you say, and inclusion. I mean, I like those two words. I mean, are we, as, as, a, as a, a country with a, a very dominant foreign policy position in the region, are we doing what we should be to encourage Tunisia in the same vein? Well, I think... And, there, there, and to help them, not just encourage them, but to help sure. them. Sure. There have been positive examples of how the United States has played a positive role urging political consensus and compromise in Tunisia. And I think the former Tunisian ambassador played a critical role at, at different points in Tunisia's crises in, in 2013 and 2015 and continuously urged the parties to come together despite their differences. And that made a difference. And that's why it's so important that we are fully engaged, that we do have larger diplomatic staffs um, in the region because U.S. engagement and diplomacy matters at critical junctures, and when we're not active, when we're on the sidelines, other countries with different interests will come in and promote narrow agendas that oftentimes promote conflict and, and, and sustain conflict rather than political unity that's so important for these countries to try to get beyond many of the problems that they face. Let me add that in Tunisia, um, they lost control of many of their mosques. I know Tunisians that just stopped going because there was nothing there for them right. that they uh, could tolerate uh, on both sides of this coin, either government-baked sermons that were just impossible to listen to, you know, scratching on the, or all the way to this, what is this Salafist saying? It doesn't represent my version of Islam. A uh, Tunisian government's doing better at getting control of that, but the, the problem is that the government has been more focused on closing mosques and getting rid of certain imams than it has been on actually addressing the issue of what kind of Islam we want to have in Tunisia. And in terms of the other side of the inclusivity piece, um, 
the, the Islamists have been included in Tunisia, and it's an example for the region, model for the region, um, but the inclusivity question in, 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 uh, in uh, Tunisia right now has more to do with economics and security. So how do we include old regime re uh, elements, this is the economic reconciliation piece, without forgiving all of the sins uh, uh, that, that can't all be forgiven, and how do we reform the security forces without sweeping everything under the rug? Algeria did that. Algeria had no transitional justice after their wonderful reconciliation ending the war, and a lot of Algeria's current problems is because they never did that. Tunisia has an opportunity to actually reform the security forces and actually reform the economy in ways that address constructively and proactively with the former regime elements that want to be a part of things um, but, but some of them want to be a part of it with no cost and with no uh, uh, historical rendering. Let me just say one more thing on Egypt that um, I think the, 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 the catchphrase is holistic. You can do counterterrorism, as Chaim said, but you have to do it in a holistic manner that addresses economics, which Sisi is talking about before his trip to the UK, and politics, which he's not talking about at all. The long-term social contract in all these countries always was before the revolutions benefit economically from the whatever, whatever we're doing, leave the politics to us. Mm -hmm. The Arab Spring turned that upside down and said, no, actually, politics is a function of economics, economics is a function of, of politics, and we need to do both politics and economics. Sisi's trying to go back to the old system where it's a security argument, I'm gonna help you benefit economically, um, but leave the politics to me. And, when it looks and, to me like we're losing yeah. influence over LCC too, because yeah. of this power vacuum that, that I see being created. So in the we world. have to chalk, walk and chew gum. We have to in, continue to engage with him and, and, and find uh, common ground, uh, continue to push him. I mean, he may not even have had these elections if he hadn't been pressured in part by right. us. And so we have to remain engaged. And as I said, I don't think we should cut $1 uh, of assistance to Egypt, um, but I do believe that we uh, need to use uh, uh, other levers at our disposal to uh, uh, continue both to signal to the regime that it needs to get better and to Egyptian civil society that all hope isn't lost. Right. Thank you both. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, to, this, to the issue of Egypt, I know, Dr. Lawrence, you mentioned as Egypt goes, North Africa goes. I think that's what you said earlier. Go back, if you will, and um, explain from your perspective, both of you, we, we had Mubarak that we cast aside quickly. We had the Muslim Brotherhood and conflicting issues there, and now we have Sisi that, that is a professional that we withheld support from. Just walk through that and tell me the impression, if you will, that we have left in the region relative to our varying um, varying support, if you will, for and lack of support for the for the entities that have come and gone, and where that leaves people to think about where we will go in the future. Thank you. I think it sends an ambiguous message, and people in the region are confused by U.S. foreign policy. I mean, in Egypt and in, in Tunisia, and lots of conversations I've had throughout the last four or five years, people will say to me, "Well, why is the United States supporting the Salafists?" Why is the United States supporting the Muslim Brotherhood? Why doesn't the United States care about democracy and human rights? And, and why has the United <laughs> States forgotten the liberals? I mean, every different constituency in the region believes that the United States is shunning them and not paying enough attention to them and not helping them. Um, and that's a function of our policies, which have not necessarily been clear. We supported, first, we supported 
Mubarak stepping aside, we supported the Morsi government and the Muslim Brotherhood, or we didn't necessarily support them, but we engaged with them. Um, we accepted President Assisi when he came to power. So there doesn't seem to be, from the perspective of the region, a lot of coherence to, to this policy, and I think it leaves people confused and unsure about what the United States is gonna do next. Let me add to that that uh, and I agree entirely with what uh, Chaim just said about um, confusion in the region, but we can be clearer. We should have been clearer in, dealing, in our dealings with the Muslim Brotherhood during the interim period, and, and, and for all of the economic problems that Egypt had during that period, it was actually the least violent period in Egyptian history uh, in the last 10 years was the, uh, was the, I mean, sorry, since the revolution, was the period that Morsi was in power. Um, in part for another point I want to make here, and I, I call this the chain of conversations. We need in our rhetoric and in our engagements to support um, a hardcore secularists talking to the secularists willing to engage with Islamists, talk to the, the, the moderate secularists and the moderate Islamists and encourage that conversation, encourage the conversation between the moderate Islamists and the democratic Salafists, encourage the conversation between the democratic Salafists and the violent Salafists because um, uh, uh, the more uh, uh, people see hope in an inclusive democratic system, the less they're going to engage in uh, uh, spoiler activities and violent activities at, at, at each end of the spectrum. And we have spoilers on both ends. Uh, uh, in, in, in Libya, to shift to Libya for a minute, uh, Libya is a complicated place. If you look at Libya polling, most Libyans want Sharia on the Constitution, right? Something that doesn't make sense to a lot of Americans. But at the same time, most Libyans think the most important thing that a Libyan politician or a Libyan uh, uh, political party can do is have good relations with the West. So, so how do you explain that? Mm -hmm. You explain that because Libyans are both being revolutionary and reasserting their Islamic identity when Islam was manipulated, right, in the Qaddafi years. And at the same time, they were cut off from the West for decades by sanctions, and they want a robust engagement from the West they don't feel they're getting. Uh, 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 moving over to Tunisia, we oh, have the well, same- Wait a minute, I don't yeah. really want to do that. So, okay. so, so back to Egypt, yeah. though. Uh, uh, what are no you problem. trying to say about the Muslim Brotherhood, that they were the most inclusive government uh, that has existed in recent times? Absolutely not. They won with 51% of the vote. and they, uh, well, they, well, What they, is your point then? They, they ruled in a 50%, 51% majoritarian way. Yeah. Um, they were just uh, 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 less violent and uh, uh, by and large more respectful of their but, political adversaries than the, than the, the, the pre precedent and the subsequent regime. So to were. the question, yeah. what, what signals through those various gyrations have we sent to Egypt, and from your perspective, as Egypt goes, North Africa goes, what, yeah. what has been the, the message that has been heard there through these multiple gyrations? Well, I think our biggest failing wasn't anything during the Morsi period. And I know the diplomats that worked hard in the April to June timeframe of 2013 trying to avert uh, the coup. Um, Morsi was offered a deal similar to the deal the Nehda party got in Tunisia to step down. Uh, he got conflicting advice. Zanushi told him to take the deal. Erdogan told him not to take the deal. And, 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 and Morsi went with the uh, uh, stick it out 
uh, philosophy when he could have stepped down and as the Tunisian Islamist party did and accept a transitional government. Um, so that was a piece of it. Um, I don't think during the Morsi period there's much more the US could have been done except to make clear that we weren't favoring Islamists as Islamists. We were favoring Islamists, we were favoring Islamist Democrats as Democrats. I think come the coup in July 2013, and I was on BBC America July 4th saying this is a coup, you know. Uh, 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 it was a coup. And I think by not calling it a coup and by uh, reacting in a confusing way, um, we alienated the entirety of Egyptian youth. I mean, I was an election observer in uh, 2013 in, or 14 in Egypt, the, the, the last elections before this one, and everyone voting was over 40. I mean, Egyptian youth were just not there. And if you ask Egyptians under 35, you know, what's your view of the United States? It's not just confusion, it's disgust about, about how the US uh, didn't support democracy uh, at, at a time that mattered. Now, these people didn't know how hard US diplomats tried to keep the Egyptian revolution on track, and it was a valiant effort. Um, but uh, um, uh, getting too cozy with CC too quickly sent messages that uh, that uh, uh, are, are problematic now. Well, I didn't think we got cozy enough. I'll be honest. Yeah. We withheld support. I didn't think that uh, indicated a lot of coziness, and so I would disagree 180 degrees. I think we uh, left them hanging out there. We they didn't know whether we supported them or not, as was mentioned before. Uh, they got tremendous support from other people in the region, and at a moment in time when we might have helped shape some of these issues that you're laying out, uh, we, were, we were in a quasi-mode where, you're right, we didn't call it a coup, but at the same time we were withholding uh, support for them militarily at a time when, when they needed uh, some show of support for the United, from the United States, so I couldn't disagree more. I mean, we, we didn't cozy up very quickly. I mean, am I missing something? My view may be a little more nuanced than, than I've made it sound, but let me say this. Um, Egypt, Egypt gets a huge amount of military assistance, so no withheld assistance during the period we were holding it had much of an impact on Egypt. It had a big impact on U.S. Uh, uh, interests, you know, that like to have a certain amount of arms sold to Egypt, but it, it didn't really have much of an impact on Egypt. Um, I think at a, at a moment of a coup, if you immediately line up with the, the, the coup maker and say, we're with you, uh, yeah, in a, in a post-revolutionary country, that, that, that's, that's an important uh, uh, issue. And, uh, you know, we have had American citizens held in Egyptian jails, uh, one of whom I mentioned. We've had a, a, a human rights uh, catastrophe. Um, and it's watched in 24-7 news cycles across the region. So. If our goal is only short-term geopolitical advantage, and if our only goal is having a strong ally and a region on fire, then you're right, and I concede. But if we want to have a policy that has medium and long-term success, and which captures the imaginations and the efforts of young people, uh, 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 withholding aid to Sisi for a little while only to restore it uh, is the wrong message. It, it wasn't a, a strong enough so, message. So the, so the right message was? I'm, I'm, I'm been confused by the testimony here, but the right pushing method. for a political inclusive outcome in Egypt as hard as we could. And and let me just why would CC not see that to be in his interest now? 
Well, I would say that he... I mean, he's uh, a smart guy. Yeah. He's a smart guy. He's yeah. educated. He uh, is a leader. He, yeah. he does want to be there for the long haul. Why would he not view greater inclusiveness over time in Egypt uh, to be in his interest? I would say, and I'm, I welcome him to chime in if he wants, um, but I would say that he um, uh, uh, chose the comfortable path, and the comfortable path was to demonize the the half of Egyptian society that had voted for the FJP, the strong quarter of Egyptian society that supported them, uh, and now stand basically completely alienated from Egyptian politics, um, uh, and 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 restore the the pre-revolutionary order, and it's an order that worked uh, in his mind. It's an order that uh, uh, was successful in keeping occult forces at bay. Um, if, if, if your main issue is the ideology of your adversary, right, and excluding that ideology of, at all costs, then, uh, then, then that's the reasonable uh, course. What, I, what I've been arguing all along is that the point of the Arab Spring was that everyone would have a seat at the table and everyone who played the democratic game would get their seat, right? Um, uh, 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 that was not Sisi's view. Sisi's view was I will exclude my ideological enemies en masse by the millions in terms of voting and by the tens of thousands in jail uh, 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 because I don't agree with them ideologically. Um, it, 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 it's a formula that can work to some short-term degree, but I don't think it bodes well for Egypt's long-term political and economic development. Mr. Malcolm. Yeah, I, th I think it's a little bit more complex. And what was interesting uh, was in July 2013 who President Sisi's allies were. He there were Salafi political parties that supported President Sisi's uh, takeover of, of, of Egypt. And, as a survival tactic. Well, as a survival tactic, yeah. as a political tactic, yeah. uh, because they're also competing for Islamist votes against the Muslim Brotherhood, but that's sort of a separate issue. So I think, you know, inclusivity, yes, it's important for long-term stability, absolutely. Um, but it's not that Sisi excluded everyone. And there are different elements within Egypt that are playing a role. Granted, they haven't done very well in, in recent parliamentary elections. But I think over time, the goal should be to expand space uh, for other voices in, in um, the, the Egyptian political system. But as long as external force, political forces believe that the game is already cooked, that the, that the outcomes are already set, uh, there's less of a, of a willingness to participate. Uh, and that goes for Tunisia, it goes for Morocco, it goes for other countries as well. What did the signal, us going into Libya, we had worked with Gaddafi to rid uh, the country of weapons of mass destruction. Um, certainly he was a, uh, not, not a good person, no question, that's an understatement. But what, what signal did that send when an uprising uh, occurred there? Um, we took him out. Um, what signal did that send to the region? I'm, I'm, again, I'm just curious. Well, I was in Morocco when the, um, when the bombing campaign started, and everyone that I met with during that visit was, was warning us against what was happening, was warning not to get involved militarily in Libya and to just leave the, the, the 
the state as, as it was. I think the problem was going in without a strategy for how to put Libya back together after Gaddafi. And that's where things fell short. And I think the signal, that sends more of a signal uh, rather than the initial military intervention. What sends a signal is the lack of a strategy and then in the, the, the perception that after deposing Gaddafi, that the US walked away and left Libya uh, to fall apart uh, to its own devices. That sends a signal that the US isn't really committed, that it doesn't follow through, that it only has short-term interests uh, and not long-term interests. And this goes back to my initial point that you know, if, if we're gonna be engaged, we need to be engaged for the long haul, we need to manage the risks, and we need to be committed to following through. Um, uh, if I may add to that, um, Algerians felt very strongly that way too and gave us uh, strong advice to stay out of Libya for these reasons. They predicted the outcome. Uh, Moroccans and, and Tunisians in terms of the population by and large were very much in favor uh, because they saw our action as a, a pro-Libyan population. What people often forget is half of Libya had already breakin, broken away uh, by the time uh, NATO got involved. So it wasn't an, a, a, an issue of us going in and toppling Gaddafi. We didn't even take Gaddafi out. It was Libyan militias after the, the convoy was bombed, but the, when the convoy was bombed, it wasn't even bombed knowing Gaddafi was in it. Um, the the uh, 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 civil war that would have happened in Libya would have gone on for much longer uh, without the NATO intervention, in my opinion, but I agree wholeheartedly with Haim's answer to your question, and insofar as that was the premise of your question, that going into Libya without a plan to stabilize Libya uh, afterwards uh, was a mistake. Now, let me add one thing. I was on all five of the State Department working groups on Libya uh, in 2011. We had a great plan. Uh, uh, um, what happened was, uh, after the fact, is that um, a succession of Libyan governments uh, were never ready, didn't have the bandwidth, always wanted the sort of next iteration of the process, the minister be named, the vote the, to, to happen. And by the time Libyans had realized uh, 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 it was too late, it was too late. And now a lot of Libyans have, uh, have taken to blaming the US for not having followed through. Uh, but I would argue wholeheartedly that although the US have, should have devoted more diplomatic bandwidth uh, uh, to Libya all along, um, uh, the mistake post-revolution was primarily a Libyan mistake and a Libyan inability to accept international assistance, not primarily a Western mistake in planning. Well, I thank you all for being here. I, I asked the questions uh, uh, not to in any way cast blame or anything else, but to, you know, here we are. Um, the purpose of these hearings, and this is the last one, is to help us develop, quote, quote, as a committee, uh, an approach to the Middle East, and yet what I see and what I see continuing to happen is just a series of sort of ad hoc steps. Been going on for some time. Again, I'm not in any way, uh, it's just an observation. Um, a lack of any real consistencies, and the thought of maybe developing a, a Middle East policy with so many um, countervailing forces, if you will, at work in each country being so different relative to what they're dealing with, um, somewhat, uh, you know, makes the task of, quote, having a Middle East policy 
uh, somewhat daunting, and, and I'm getting ready to sign off here and thank you all for being here, but would either one of you all want to respond to that? I think it was uh, Itzhak Rabin that used to say, uh, you have to fight terrorism like there's no dialogue, and you have to have dialogue like, like there's no terrorism problem. And I think, uh, you know, the degree to which going forward we can emphasize with, with vigor our commitment to democracy, human rights, and inclusive dialogue, while at the same time going after the bad guys in an aggressive way, uh, uh, um, uh, independent, and, and you know, bad guys who will stay bad guys. There's always bad guys. Uh, and if I can add one more point, um, in, there's, there's always, this, in every society throughout history, there's always very nasty people who want to do nasty things. For me, the main issue is what sea are they swimming in? Is it a sea of population that's sympathetic because they've, they're using the same grievances that population has to justify their awfulness, right? Or is it a population that's turning against them that's beginning to see dividends from, from the government, local and, and national and international uh, assistance that, that seems to be taking their grievances uh, 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 seriously and at least beginning to address them? And if, and if you tip that balance in the right direction, those bad guys have smaller and smaller areas to, to operate in. So th this is my... Uh, yeah, I would comment. just add that some people would observe that, you know, our pursuit of democracy when countries uh, have not yet been ready for that has helped create much of the chaos that exists in the region. And I would argue it's coming anyway. See, democracy's coming anyway. And the, and the analogy I use for the Arab Spring is 1848 Europe, where one monarchy flipped but the, the momentum against monarchies began that took decades. And there was a lot of chaos in mid-9th century Europe, too. Um, uh, uh, even if they're not ready for democracy, the youth populations are. See, And, and this, is, this is what we have to deal with. Hungry youth populations wanting democracy, how do we deal with them? Thank you. I think one of the things that we need to think about when we pursue a policy, first, clearly state what our interests are, clearly state what our objectives are, and not get bogged down in process, but also think about outcomes as well, which is what our allies and our enemies uh, often do in a much more focused way than we do. But uh, we need to show long-term commitment. We need to promote uh, inclusive politics, but we need to send a signal uh, to the people of the region, to the governments in the region, uh, that we care, that we have an interest, and, and uh, that we have a, a long-term investment plan. Part of that is also going to include understanding and acknowledging what we can't change. There are lots of things that we're trying to change. There are a lot of outcomes we're trying to get to, but we also have to understand what our limitations are um, in terms of persuading people like President Sisi uh, or other governments that we uh, deal with on a regular basis. So understanding our limitations, but also setting realistic ob objectives, I think will help guide a more effective policy. Well, thank you both. You've been very, very good witnesses and obviously uh, interact with each other a lot. We appreciate that. And the record uh, will be open. We want to welcome the charge again for being here. She nodded in approval with some of the things you said. and was silent with others. I don't know if y'all want to talk with her about some input that she may wish to give, but uh, you would have been a great witness today. We thank you for participating in the audience anyway. Uh, the record will be open, if it's okay, through the end of uh, business on Friday, and you know the drill. If you get questions, please respond to them uh, fairly quickly. But we thank you both. Um, you've helped us, and for that, we're very appreciative.
meetings adjourned. Thank you. Thank you.